0: Love, Talk Radio.
1: This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment on radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's not this. What were you before? The white man named you a Negro. And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then?
0: As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu Jamal.
2: America's
1: chickens! Are coming home! Violence begets violence, hatred begets hatred, and terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to our and ourselves.
3: I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned.
4: President Richard Nixon was the one who declared a war on drugs back in 1971 and has been fought by every administration since, but today. An international commission says that war is lost. The 19-member panel includes the former presidents of three foreign countries, two senior members of the Reagan administration and British billionaire Richard Branson. Their report labels the war on drugs a failure. It says some drugs should be regulated instead of outlawed and that drug control policy should be rooted in healthcare,
0: not law enforcement. It's clear that we have been uh, engaged in this experiment of drug prohibition now for 40 years. And um, it's been a very expensive experiment in that we have now spent almost a trillion dollars. One. So the question is, well two questions actually. One is, do you think that in fact the drug laws are designed specifically to do what they are doing or is it simply um, a bias within the enforcement world that makes them decide that they are going to enforce the drug laws um, unfairly on um, people of color? That's the first question. The second one is,
3: wouldn't the solution to the problem be take away that possibility of
0: uh, criminalizing people who use uh, pot by legalizing it? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be, would you agree that that was a way to work with the system, or would they just find something else to uh, uh, incarcerate African Americans with?
5: Well, you know, I think it's important. I spent a lot of time talking in the book to understand the history of where the drug war came from. Um, you know, most people assume that the war on drugs was launched in response to the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities. That's just false. You know, actually, the drug war was launched a couple of years before crack hit the streets and became, you know, kind of captured public attention in the media. Um, The drug war was motivated by racial politics, not drug crime. Um, It was part of kind of a broader project that the Republican Party was engaged in then, you know, the so-called Southern strategy to try to appeal to poor and working-class whites who were um, resentful of, and threatened by desegregation, busing, and affirmative action, um, poor and working-class whites who were once solidly part of the New Deal Democratic New Deal coalition, but who kind of the Reagan um, um, the Reagan administration realized could be won over to the Republican Party through kind of not so subtle racial appeals on issues around crime and welfare. So the drug war was launched as a way of trying to appeal to poor and working class white voters saying, we're going to get tough on them, put them back in their place. Um, and them was not so subtly defined as African Americans. Um, when crack emerged you know, a few years later, you know, the Reagan administration responded with glee. You know, they seized on the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities as an opportunity to build public support for the war. They actually hired staff um, to run a media campaign to publicize crack babies and crack dealers, um, crack mothers in inner city communities, and almost overnight, you know, images of black, black, you know, crack dealers and users just saturated the media and kind of forever changed our conception of who drug users and dealers are. Um, So I guess the short answer to your question is yes, there was racial motivation (laughs) for the launching of the drug war, Um, but the racial motivation wasn't simply just to kind of harm African Americans. The motivation was to win over poor and working class white voters through implicit racial appeals. Just as slavery wasn't motivated by a purely sadistic desire to harm black people, was motivated by greed, a desire to make money off of plantations. Race was the tool that was used to achieve that goal. Here, the drug war wasn't motivated solely by race, but race was the vehicle for them to achieve their political goals. And once the media imagery um, kind of saturated the news, the enemy in the war was racially defined. Law enforcement understood kind of who they were looking for. And I think the reality also is that there's no way law enforcement agencies could get away with anything remotely similar to the drug war in middle-class white communities. You know, they use SWAT teams to execute routine narcotics warrants in these communities, um, you know, busting down doors, you know, frightening um, Folks terrorizing people in pursuit of the drug war. This kind of practices would never have gone over um, in middle class white communities. It's because those folks are marginalized and politically powerless that it has been convenient um, to wage a drug war in those communities um, primarily. Um, as for legalization of drugs, well, yeah, I think you know we should seriously consider. Um, legalizing some drugs in the United States but I think it's important to recognize that we don't have to even legalize drugs to go back to what we were doing in the nineteen seventies before we were waging an all-out war on poor communities of color Um, and I think that there's a little bit of a temptation today um, because people have come to see that the drug war is a failure and that many of the justifications that have been offered for you know making marijuana illegal, for example, don't actually hold up to scientific scrutiny. Well, there's been a temptation to try to pursue kind of a colorblind approach and just argue for drug legalization as a way of mitigating the harms associated with mass incarceration. But I think that's a huge mistake. Um, Yes, we can talk about drug legalization, but we need to talk about the reason a drug war has been waged. Um, and really reckon with the role race has played in the emergence of this new system of control and how how it's been waged. If we don't reckon with that history, I do think that we're doomed to repeat it in some other form. Perhaps a new system of control we can't foresee will emerge just as mass incarceration was utterly unforeseeable just 30 years ago. Tonight
3: at our common ground, prohibition, Two Sides of a Coin, Black Pain and the Black Price of the War on Drugs in America. Our guest, the Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Neil Franklin, and a member of the board and former prosecutor, Jim Girac. It's our common ground, speaking truth to power. And ourselves. Join us in this conversation. I'll be listening for you. And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. We're so glad to to have you here in our community forum. Um, we have our chat room open if you'd like to join us in the chat room. It's blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and it is a very chilly evening uh, in Boston, and fall is moving in very quickly. We hope that you are all well. Tonight at Our Common Ground, our mission is to engage our audience, you, in a conversation about communities of color, specifically the black community that has borne disproportionately the punitive drug policies, and we want you to get really involved in advocating for an end of drug pro- prohibition. Our guest tonight in this first hour, we're going to be joined with our friend, Neil Franklin. He is a former Maryland state police Officer and a Baltimore police officer who is the Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's an international organization of criminal justice professionals who bear personal witness to the wasteful futility and harms of America's current drug policies. They have experience on the front lines of the War on Drugs, and have been led to call for a repeal of prohibition and its replacement with a tight system of legalized regulation, which they think as professionals will effectively cripple the violent cartels and street dealers who control the current illegal market. Also joining us in this program to engage you, and help me in my mission to bring a group of black people who are advocates to work on this issue is James Girock he is a member of the board of leap and he is a former chicago prosecutor and we hope that You will join us at 347-838-9852. As always, we'll be sharing with you our guests and their insights and hope that you will engage in this discussion with them. We also have uh, some insight. And one of the things that has happened over the last uh, month is that Ken Burns, Uh, has premiered his PBS documentary, Prohibition, and it brings lessons to modern America about the effect of prohibition laws in this country which parallel what we have been seeing in the last 40 years in this newest prohibition. And we're going to ask Neil Franklin to once again Share the microphone at Our Common Ground. Neil, thank you so very much for being with us tonight. I'm so glad to have you back.
6: <laughs> Janice, it is really great to be back. You thanks know I for, want to
3: yell, where have you been? <laughs>
6: <laughs> I've been I've been busier than a paper busy. hanger. I've been busy.
3: <laughs> Listen, I just want to tell you this before we begin our discussion. I saw a, a photograph of you and Matt Fogg, and some other people, and you were walking through the parking lot, and it looked like at um, the um, going up the going toward the stairs of the House of Representatives. And oh, I want to I, tell you all, oh, you oh, looked I like you were was. on a mission. We were on a
6: mission. <laughs> <laughs> you was...
3: look like I'm going to go do this. <laughs> <laughs>
6: We, no, we and I saw the
3: photograph and I said, Look at look at Major Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How are you, my brother?
6: I I'm, I'm doing well. How about you, Janice? Um,
3: I'm I'm doing real well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, you I, I mean we probably met maybe about two years ago, two and a half, three years ago. Wow. And LEAP has really expanded. I mean, LEAP is everywhere. Yeah,
6: and, we, and we're just getting started. Absolutely
3: everywhere. <laughs> and I want to congratulate you on your leadership because you weren't the executive director when we first started talking and you were co-hosting on this whole issue. Um, and so you've had a very, very good – What what have you been, the executive director now for about almost two years?
6: Not quite a year and a half About a year and four months so, yeah.
3: Wow, you have done a phenomenal job And congratulations and kudos We are so proud of the leadership That you have brought to this
6: Oh, uh, Thank you, thank you it's, I it's, mean, it's, every
3: time I have a discussion About um, the war on drugs Someone is mentioning your name Or mentioning Leap And that is real progress
6: yeah, we, we've we been very fortunate uh, over the past year or so. And I've got, you see, I've got, number one, I've got a great staff. I've got some, mm-hmm. some young people who've got a lot of energy. They keep me going. And uh, then we have uh, our Speakers Bureau. Wow, our Speakers Bureau is really growing. It's exploded, and we've got, yeah. Ooh, yeah.
3: Really yeah, I people, remember so. the first time that I talked to Tom Angel, who is your media public affairs person, um and he led me on your website to your speakers bureau and the list was like one screen now you've got to go to three pages and and that's just wonderful it's you know it really yeah. speaks to the kind of leadership and i do want to talk to you about your co-sponsoring the 2011 international drug policy reform conference Oh, great. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, and and Jim is going to join us. I mean, Jim really rocked the mic when he was with us about 2 weeks ago uh because we wanted people to know about this PS uh PBS documentary mm-hmm. by Ken Burns which I watched both, all three segments and that's been um I I think that's been eye-opening for a lot of people. What are you
6: hearing, Neil? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say one quick comment about Jim. I just spent two days in Chicago with Jim uh, a week ago, and that guy, he really is amazing Uh, with his base of knowledge. And, and of course, he's been in this for years, and he saw this many years back, but he's just absolutely wonderful, and and your guests are going to to be in for a real treat if they have not yet heard him. But as far as Ken, Ken Burns in this PBS series, Um, Wow How how can you miss it How can Mm -hmm. you miss uh, The correlation between Prohibition back in the 1920s And what we're going through today I mean the similarities um, Are quite striking And it's interesting because I believe it was um, uh, I believe his name is Paul Shabbat Um who wrote an op ed um regarding the Ken Burns series saying that uh you can't compare the two that it wasn't and he brought forth some, some issues that it wasn't illegal to drink. It back then it was just illegal to sell and and uh and, and and manufacture or what have you. And you know what? He's right. He's right. And that's why prohibition of today with, with drugs is even more mm-hmm. devastating to our community. Because law enforcement is not just going after those making and selling. They're locking anybody up who has it in their possession.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: And, and that's where the majority of uh, black and brown people are going to prison um, mm-hmm. today with uh, marijuana. But the violence um, associated with it, and, and I think, if, I, if my memory serves me correct, he also um, interviewed um, Dan O'Krent, who uh, wrote the book *The Last Call*. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I want to read just a, a couple of lines of, from. And, and Dan O'Krent initially, when he wrote his book, he wasn't quite there, you know, with denouncing prohibition of today. But since this Ken Burns series has come out, he's now denouncing prohibition of today. And in his book, which is you know uh, exactly what Ken Burns' uh, uh, series is about, he writes in almost every in almost every respect imaginable, prohibition was a failure. It encouraged criminality and institutionalized hypocrisy. It deprived the government of revenue, stripped the gears of the political system, and imposed profound limitations on individual rights. It fostered a culture of bribery, blackmail, and official corruption. It also maimed, murdered, its its excesses apparent in deaths by prison, by the brutality of the ill-trained, improperly supervised enforcement officers, and by unfortunate proximity to mob gun battles. He's talking about prohibition back in the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds like sounds like he's talking about prohibition. I today. know. I mean, so um wow, I mean in 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 some initial interviews of Ken Burns, there has been a lot of questions asked of him. Hey, I mean, so what about prohibition of today? With mm-hmm. drugs mm-hmm. and the similarities, and when, and he's you know he said wait a, minute, wait a minute this is this isn't about prohibition of the day, mm-hmm. and he's trying to he you know he tried to steer away from prohibition of the day, but see you can't make a movie a documentary about prohibition of the twenties and not have people and not draw the, the parallels uh, and start mm-hmm. asking questions about the mm-hmm. two and you know in correlation with each mm-hmm. other so. He's going I mean, you know, unfortunately, uh he's going to have to <laughs> talk about it. Well, that.
3: you know, immediately you you have to uh you put it together prior to the prohibition the PBS documentary which premiered last weekend or weekend mm-hmm. before last. Um I have been following a TV series on HBO called Boardwalk Empire. And I don't yeah, know if yeah. you've caught that I've, well, I've, I've caught bits
2: and pieces It really there, yeah.
3: is about prohibition of alcohol Yeah. And it's about how It The activities around it was, There was lots of violence There were creation Of very well organized gang, Gangs You know um, And you see the development of the the Gangsters that we know Like Al Capone and 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 how politicians were spurred inside of this net that mm-hmm. these gangsters created as a result of the prohibition laws, but right. I do have some clips for those of you who have not seen it, and uh Neil, let's take a minute and listen to some of uh some clips from the documentary as well as. Ken Burns talking about his analysis of what prohibition me- meant then and how it parallels so many the laws and the policies created a parallel to what we're seeing not only in the war on drugs but what we're seeing in our political landscape. Here we okay. go. Great. <laughs>
4: Burns and Lynn Novick, it was exactly what America wanted, and it caught us completely by surprise. It turned citizens into criminals, and criminals into kings. It changed the very nature of our democracy twice. Prohibition. What a stupid idea it was. That people actually thought you could get away with this. That you could actually ban alcohol, completely eliminate its usage in American society. It's, it's a preposterous idea. Virtually every part of the Constitution is about expanding human freedom, except prohibition, in which human freedom was being limited. And we get in trouble. It was a struggle between small towns and big cities. The West and the Tries with the whole country caught in the middle. It's not that sin is so terrible, it's that sin is very attractive. And that's why we're always tempted to do it. So what you need then is to help people. And if necessary, sometimes you have to make sin illegal. What it would mean in practice was going to have to be worked out through the legal system. Because to pass a law in the real world means nothing. To enforce the law means everything.
5: You drank to show that you were a man, but you get drunk and all of a sudden you can't provide for your family, you can't do your job.
4: It was a time when women found their voice and helped to change the nation.
5: The women gather in front of a saloon and they start praying. And the movement takes off like wildfire.
4: And our greatest heroes were also our greatest criminals. You cannot legislate morality. In legislating and attempting to legislate morality, you create opportunities for people who do not follow the law. It fueled the jazz age and made the 20s roar.
7: It was the beginning of the time when boys and girls slept together. There was quite a lot of that going on, which astounded me from my innocent background.
4: Discover the true story of America's great experiment. There was a myth of the person who breaks the law when it's a stupid law uh, to give people what they want. Once the government begins forbidding things, then somebody will come along and say, I got it. will step around the corner. Don't miss the new film from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, Prohibition only on PBS. Prohibition as it pertains to, I guess, you know, a lot of people draw the parallels to drugs and... You know what, it's
8: such a stupid it, parallel to, to draw. And the reason is, yeah, I mean, you can talk about that stuff, but drugs have always been parts of some very rare subcultures. Every culture drinks alcohol has fermented or distilled spirits. The real connection about prohibition, to me the thing that there's nothing new under the sun, is that this is a story about right-wing single-issue campaigns that metastasize. This is the story about the demonization of immigrants. This is the story about uh, state and local governments complaining about unfunded mandates. This is the story of smear campaigns against Democrats. This is a story about unintended consequences. It is almost exactly what's going on now. It's the last gasp of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. They, we keep these Romanists from getting their wine. It, you know, we'll still be able to hold on. It's like a tea party thing. It's unbelievable. Did it, how it
7: backfire on us? Of
8: course it did. Well, I
7: mean, I know it backfired, but to. To what extent in every degree. would we female, not have organized
8: crime? We probably wouldn't have organized crime to the extent that we have today. It made half the country lawbreakers. Female alcoholism, which was almost non existent, confined to housewives taking Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, which was mostly made up of alcohol uh, in the 1970s. oil. And women were never, when, unless you were a prostitute, you were never in a saloon, which is what the Anti Saloon League wanted to get rid of. So when you get rid of the saloons, you replace them with speakeasy. There's no government. Kids can drink and did. Women drank and did, and female alcoholism becomes a huge social problem by the time Prohibition's over, and it, nothing so ever it's an cured un- alcohol.
4: Unintended consequence
7: of Prohibition Shoot. is bringing the women into the speakeasy. It, yeah, and it—I ha-
8: mean, it, the co- it, it got passed because of a lot of different factors, but it also, after World War One, there's that typical after the war change in habits, and so women, the, the mothers who had worked so hard for temperance and then got suckered into accepting total temperance, T, capital Mm T-total, abstinence, that's where it comes from, Um, You know, suddenly looked in horror as their daughters were bobbing their hair and their short skirts and they're not wearing bras and they're drinking and they're driving and they're, you know, it made half the country, uh, you know, (laughs) lawbreakers. It never worked.
3: You see... (laughs) The bottom line for for me, Neil, is that whether it be temperance or whether it be prohibition of alcohol, or the our what we know in the last forty years is the war on drugs. It's a stupid experiment that right. didn't work and could never have worked. Right. And that's what I think Ken Burns brings to to this documentary. That it made no sense.
6: Right, and and what one line that was said there. uh, Once the government starts to prohibit something that people want, someone's going to find it, you know, and give it to them. Mm -hmm. And um,
2: Mm -hmm. and
6: it and that's what uh, and this is what we end up with all these unintended consequences. But one of the things I also heard is that in in that one interview is that you can't compare the, the the two. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. he went on to say things like uh, the demonization of immigrants. Well, the demons, demonization of blacks and Latinos. Uh, thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unintended consequences. You know, he talked about organized crime. He talked about under prohibition how everyone began to drink kids and women, you know, to speakeasies. You know, so, I mean, and <laughs> so how can he, in one in one hand you're saying you can't compare the two and then the other hand you're you're spouting off these characteristics of of one which are also the characteristics of the other
3: mhm you know at at the beginning of the program tonight and i i probably will run through it one more time
2: Mighty because well. i think
3: it's very important uh, with um michelle alexander yeah. uh the author of um uh, the new Jim Crow. She talks about she she tells the history of of uh, the war on drugs in America and how it began as really a way in a, a political strategy to divide white people from black people in terms of being able to say that there are different classes and mm-hmm. that's how we came up with different laws that you know the crack the different differentiation between crack cocaine and cocaine in our laws but yeah. even at the end she says that she's not sure that we should legalize drugs
6: but well, that she, if said we all, don't she said have, she said some drugs
3: yes that that we but we must be find a way to reform our policies because it is another way in which certain people are oppressed and justice is denied simply by virtue of the law.
6: Right, right. I mean, there there are probably some things that you can change without ending the prohibition of drugs, but the bottom line is if you want to have great uh, holistic su- success, and when I when I say that, I'm not just talking about uh, ending the prison pipeline. I'm you know I'm talking about uh, the violence in our streets. I'm talking mm-hmm. about uh, our kids being enticed and recruited into this business. I'm mm-hmm. talking about overdose deaths. I'm I, I'm talking about HIV and and hepatitis C. You know, and and the list goes on and on and on. I'm talking about our Fourth Amendment rights as you're out here walking the streets or driving a car, racial profiling, you know, and the list goes on and on. If you want to have monumental success, you know, and and the bottom line is regulation and control. And, you know, when you really get down to what that means, it's a form of legalization.
5: Um, Mm -hmm. Mm
6: -hmm. And you've got to have regulation and control of these substances that people want and that people will find a way to get. Um mm-hmm. another thing that was uh came out in this Ken Burns series well, one of the interviews is that you've got people who actually, you know, and, and and you know when it comes to the criminals in the business who actually uh get a high of sorts on being in that business, the glamour associated with it. You know, in the Ken Burns Mm -hmm. thing, he talked about Mm -hmm. the glamour of prohibition and the speakeasies and being able to provide this substance to people, Mm -hmm. you know, in the shadows and you know because it's illegal and all of that that goes with it. And that's also a part of this as to why um, under drug prohibition, and when you talk to young kids, you know that that's enticing to them. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it's, it's you know when Jim fruit. was with us, he talked he talked about that. He 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 talked a lot about that. Yeah. But this ex- also extends to and one of the things I was on another radio show today, and I was talking about how enticing that this uh, the benefits for law enforcement people and I'm not trying to disparage law enforcement people so don't call up here and say I said the cops were crooked. Oh, call,
2: uh-oh. There are some oh, they call cops, there,
3: there are crooked cops and they arrested some in New York City this week. <laughs> hey. But it's enticing for them. I mean yeah. I, I I don't know the the, the name of um the movie, but it played itself out in New York City, where people policemen were actually arresting people and setting them up
2: yeah.
3: and stealing from them uh, yeah. as a way and 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 you and I both know that there are rogue cops out there who know who the drug dealers are,
5: right. allow
3: them to accumulate large sums of money as well as drug stashes right. and then organize their friends on a non-official bust, and take everything, and it's never reported, and then they become mm-hmm. the drug kings in our community. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an amazing kind of system that we have set up through these policies right. that encourage, and, and, and we haven't even started talking about how it encourages um, our our International policies, you know, right. uh, I was listening to the President uh, this proposed free trade agreement
2: mm-hmm. is
3: is only going to make what we see in terms of our drug war worse. It guarantees that Colombians won't be able to organize trade unions mm-hmm. so that they can demand higher wages mm-hmm. because the trade agreement Uh, along with NAFTA in Mexico that costs tons of jobs for us,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: but it formulates a policy within that company where poor people can't make a living. Right. I I, I just, you know, and one of the things I I wanted to ask you is uh, uh, about the numbers. Uh at one time we were seeing one drug arrest every nineteen seconds in this in this country. And those numbers in my mind and you and I have talked about it in the past yeah. simply speak to the idea that this is a failed war.
6: Yeah, I mean we're just marijuana alone we're making over eight hundred thousand arrests in this country a year. Eight
3: hundred
6: thousand mm-hmm. mm-hmm. arrests. I mean yeah. so the numbers are, and just look at New York, you know, uh, Commissioner Kelly, you know, he recently had to give orders to his police officers to stop, you know, or to to strictly abide by the policies of the marijuana decriminalization law in um, in, in New York because they were finding ways to circumvent that, and they were pretty much uh, uh, going about things the wrong way and ended up locking up over 50,000 people last year. And, of course, we know that 86% of those people they arrested were uh, people of color, black and Latino, um, yeah. the 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 corruption issue in police departments that you spoke to across this country is has 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 always been challenging ever since we started this war on drugs. Yes, we've always had corruption at, at some level, but it just took off like uh like a wildfire uh, once we got halfway through, you know, ten or twenty years into this war on drugs. And law enforcement agencies battle with this every day. Another parallel, here we go again. When you look at um, Roy Olmsted in Seattle back in the 1920s, he was the uh, uh, illegal, I mean the, pretty much the only one, illegal importer of booze back in the 1920s. He was an ex-cop from the Seattle Police Department. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
6: he, you know, so he he started getting into the business while he was a cop. He got booted out of the police department, and then he went into the business because he saw a better way to do things than than the current criminals that were doing it. And he had just about every major official and police department and police official on his payroll.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. So there we're, you
3: have it. We're going to later on in in the show. Um, listen to a a segment, a very small segment of a movie that ex- explores how a drug dealer, a small-time drug dealer, um, decides to get big and what he has to do in order to do that. And it's because we have these laws in place that as a teenager – He was enticed to believe that this is the way to do it, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Um, and 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 you know Neil, the thing is that what I'm not understanding is as hard as you guys are working at Leap, you got men and women are working at Leap, why we don't have more legislators, both at the state and local and federal level. Supporting this, talking about it, moving it along legislatively.
6: Well, I'll I'll talk to you about when you come. I'll talk to you about some of the conversations I had last week down in on Capitol Hill.
3: <laughs> okay, and then when we come back, we're also going to be joined by James G. Rock. He ah. is a. Did I get it right? <laughs> you're, you're <up. laughs> rock. Yeah. Uh Rock. He is a former. Chicago prosecutor and a member of the Board of LEAP. He has been with us before, and I think think that one of the things that we have to do is we have to keep talking about it. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we're talking about the war on drugs and the pain and price that America has paid. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back.
1: the right. NPR lean, and you can ask, you know, and when I say NPR leans to the right, I'm simply speaking about who they have on, they have twice as many conservatives on spewing bovine excrement than they do liberals with their chicken excrement. So, at some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where's the job? What job skills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is ...spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, how you feel about the speed rail? You mean the French can do it? Japan can do it? The Chinese can do it? Europe, they can do it over there? But we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so uh, mired in ignorance and mired in in, in, in just just total obstruction?
2: Listening to the best
3: pushback politics,
2: The Alpha Show.
5: know why I'm fine one minute and the next my body aches so bad I can't move I want to know why my hair is falling out I'm only 17 I'm tired all the time
8: now
2: this rash I just want to know what's going on
8: when you don't have the right answers it may be time to ask your doctor the right question could I have lupus for answers for support
3: for hope visit could I have lupus.gov or call 1-800-994-9662 brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Women's Health and the Ad Council And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground tonight. Talking about the war on drug, it is time for an exit strategy. Our guest, Neil Franklin, the Executive Director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And joining us now is Jim Girac, who is a member of the board, and I just lost him. Um, I don't know. He just disappeared from the board, but he will hopefully call right back. Um, Neil, one of the things that is really puzzling me is that we don't have a lot of visibility with our politicians Mm -hmm. uh, around this issue, around even if it's just the discourse the public discourse uh to talk about how damaging what we are what our policies are to poor and communities of color
6: yeah there're only uh, a handful unfortunately that have the courage to come forward and, and speak to this, and I say the courage because it's not like the majority of our politicians don't know or they disagree. In fact, the majority of our politicians do agree that this is an issue, and um, but they still believe it to be politically unsafe for them to take the lead. Um, and I mentioned before the break that we were in Washington, D.C., Um, A few days ago, um, we had four teams, um, some of our speakers and some volunteers, some law students and some volunteers from the uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and we went down to Capitol Hill and we delivered some documents to 67, uh, the offices of 67 of our policymakers in the House and in the Senate and um, we had some very interesting conversations, not with because we didn't have appointments, but not with the actual representatives, but with, but with staffers. And one conversation in particular, and I'm not going to mention the name, of course, um, just came right out and said that, uh, well, you know, it's we can't take the lead on such a thing, you know, when 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 enough do then we'll be right there with with you. And so it's like, okay, so uh, who's going to take the lead? You all feel uh-huh, this way. Uh-huh. You all, you know, mm-hmm. not all, but most of you feel this way that we have to, you know, end prohibition or that we have to have some serious drug policy changes in this country, but no one wants to take the lead, but yet you all, you know, there's a consensus here about it. But don't, now there are a couple, uh, John Conyers uh has pretty much come out and said time to end the war on drugs and he supported uh Barney Frank's bill uh to which is um to remove uh marijuana out of schedule one basically to let the states uh move forward with uh uh what they feel they need to do with marijuana. Um, also um uh, uh, uh I think it's polis from uh Colorado uh of course, there's 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 ron Paul, I mean so there's just a handful of our national representatives
5: that have clearly
6: come out and and said that you know the war on drugs isn't working, so you know it it's time for a new strategy mhm mhm, um, but there are many that feel the same way, they just don't have the courage
3: well, you know the thing is that we we really have to um assess. How, you know, I really give Michelle Alexander a lot of credit about how she has summarized how this drug war started. Yeah. And it it started at a time where it was so much easier to use policies that divided people than... um, than to deal with the issue and 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 you know and we're not underscoring the the notion that we're one of the few countries on the planet that deal with the drug issue other than from a health problem we deal it deal with it from a crime problem right but when you see the number of families you see what it has done generation after generation after generation in the black community, to the extent that it has created a whole uh, a, a, a whole community that has no respect or regard or very little respect and regard for the role of law enforcement mm-hmm. in their neighborhoods,
6: yeah, because it, nobody
3: it's... trusts the police
6: right it's it's caused so many so many problems, even if the uh, even even if it's not a corruption issue in these communities with the police you know it's the fact that the police have pretty much occupied their neighborhoods under the umbrella of drug enforcement instead of you know under the umbrella of keeping you safe from violent criminals yeah. um yeah. you know and michelle you know god god bless her for that book um you know, and and as she pointed out, you know, really, this is about social control. At least, let me just say, that's how it began, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. social control, as she um, spoke to that in, in the clip that you played. And, you know, when you can't control or you can't criminalize someone for, say, like the color of their skin, so then you find something that um either is what they do or you make it seem as though it is what they do and you criminalize the behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened here. And that's mm-hmm. what that's how it began. But now I believe it continues to to go, it continues to move forward at this pace because of money. I think Mm -hmm. money is a very significant piece now because, you know, it began with the criminals being the ones, you know, know, reeking in the dough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now on the other side of the the so-called good guys, and you'll have to ask Jim to speak to this because he does a very good job doing that uh, when talking about this, but now you've got everything from, from prisons and to all the businesses and services that support prisons um, to police officers to dynasties that have been created. Remember, the, the entire Drug Enforcement Administration came about because of drug prohibition under Richard Nixon. You know, and it started with just a couple million dollars for the budget, and now it's it's a few billion dollars.
3: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And we have spent a trillion dollars
6: on it. Yeah, well over a trillion dollars on this drug war. And we've got the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And, you know, unfortunately, we have many organizations that have had to come about, such as reentry programs and all these nonprofit organizations that are out here dealing with victims and 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 formerly incarcerated folks and community issues and neighborhood issues all surrounding this industry of the illicit drug trade. So Mm -hmm. there's so much money being made by so many people, people are afraid to make any changes. Because a lot of people think that jobs will be lost, a lot of people think that correction officers will be laid off. They think that cops will be laid off, but that's not true because the transition would be so gradual that normal attrition rates would handle this as people retire so but oh God, it's just becomes such a
3: huge
6: mm-hmm. mess is let what me it is. let
3: me ask you about positions of certain um organizations that i feel ought to be involved in this one is the national association of law enforcement officers um the other is the african-american association of law enforcement officers are they involved at all are they are they either pro or con on your efforts toward um uh, dismantling this pro- these prohibition policies?
6: Well, let me speak to, to, to now, the um, a little over a year ago, um, well, about a year ago, the National Black Police Officers Association, when it was under the leadership of Ron Hampton. Or Ron, Ham- Ham- was a uh-huh, great, Ron that-
3: Hampton has been on this show before.
6: Uh-huh. Yeah. When, when under his leadership they were definitely supporting uh drug reform they supported proposition nineteen in, in, in california uh you know so they were definitely there with they were there with ending the drug war. I'm not sure about the current leadership um as for the um uh for noble i think might be one you're speaking of and um, um national organization of black law enforcement executives. They have been on the other side of the fence. And this is what I I don't understand, but I think that I'm hoping that that will change because I just spoke to the recent, the the new president, the current president. Mm -hmm. But a year ago for Proposition 19, they came out in opposition to the NAACP in California, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and Alice Huffman, which kind of struck me as being interested, especially when their motto is, you know, justice by action. You know, uh, not just for law enforcement, but for communities, the communities they work in. So uh, they came out with a statement, a written statement, that they were in opposition against Proposition 19 and were clearly against um, um, any type of uh, regulation and control or ending prohibition and ending the drug war. Now, the current leadership, I think, has a different perspective, and I will be talking with them later uh to see um you know exactly where they are the their current mm-hmm. president and mm-hmm. I sat on a recent panel at the Black Caucus uh gathering down in uh, Washington DC and uh so i i think we might have some hope there mhm you know
3: one of the things i i i did uh attend a meeting uh one day this week and of a coalition that had invited me to come in and sit in on their organizing committee, and it was Occupy the Hood Boston. And it's a a coalition of black, Latino Mm -hmm. and Cape Verdean citizens who are simply pushing back against all, all public policy that tends to have a chilling effect on working class people and poor people, and one of the things that I suggested to, to them is that they become a, an or an organizational associate of of Leap, because you cannot address the problems in those communities without talking about the need for reform and the need to shut off the kind of judiciary, law enforcement, and prison system that is simply sucking the life and the future out of these communities. I'm hoping that Jim uh, Garak will call back in. I think he was on the board, and then all of a sudden he just disappeared.
6: Yeah, I, I I'm sure that he, um, yeah. I know that he will. I think he was calling in at 11, so I'm sure he Oh, okay.
3: So our number is 347-838-9852, and tonight at Our Common Ground, we're talking about um, the exit strategy that we need out of this war on drugs. It has cost this country a million dollars. Our guest on the line with us is Neil Franklin, who is the Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and he is a former um, top cop. <laughs> <laughs> now, Neil, one of the things that you've always talked about, and we'll take your calls at 347 838 9852, because one of the things that you've always talked about um, in your work with LEAP has been the notion that uh, this war on drugs created and developed racial disparities in all law enforcement um, uh, areas. For instance, it was safe to drive while being black to a certain extent until um, law enforcement decided that the war on drugs was a priority. Talk to us about that.
6: Yeah, and, and, and when I typically speak about that, to make it easy for people to understand, always point to the book The Black Dragon um which is a recent uh book that came out by Joseph Cullum who is a who was a uh um reporter uh uh in uh northern New Jersey and uh he was the one that pretty much uncovered the uh the strategies of the New Jersey State Police on the on the Turnpike New Jersey Turnpike back in the 1980s when they started you know um stopping cars on the turnpike specifically, I mean it was this huge campaign of looking for drugs under the umbrella of the war on drugs and you know the, the, the federal uh recruitment of local law enforcement and state law law enforcement into this. So in that see they just didn't do this in New Jersey. Of course the New Jersey state police did, but here's what happened. As they became successful in their techniques of stopping people call it blacks and Latinos on a New Jersey turnpike, um, you know, that's pretty much, I mean, the percentages were extremely high. Uh, and they were just stopping cars one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And just a matter of, of numbers that you go through, you're going to eventually find drugs. It got to the point where they were just seizing money from people with no evidence of drugs in a car, and and it just became absolutely crazy in violation of our con- constitutional rights and what have you. So Joseph Cullum exposed that, but before that happened, they taught their techniques and so-called strategies to, 40, to police departments in 41 other states, including Maryland, my home state. When I was working with the state police in Maryland, so with 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 activities like that, and when you have the media, uh, who played a significant role in 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 convincing all of us that black people were the ones using and selling the majority of the drugs in this country. Mm-hmm. You end up with significant racial profiling, right? And, East, and and the what
3: they did was that empowered the prosecutors. That yeah. empowered, and and because there was such outrage about the 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 stories, the passion stories about drug victims.
6: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, um, I, I think about at the same time we got the movie um, New Jack.
6: Yeah, it didn't help.
3: Where, where the the this movie is proposing that an entire ten floor apartment complex was being right. used for the manufacture. I mean, that was just uh, and people bought that.
2: Yeah. And
3: then people started being afraid, and then people started um, seeing every unemployed black man. Every depressed mental uh, mental health case in the country. Oh, you know that was that was the result of the crack epidemic. Uh, I mean, it it got so out of hand, and oh, then yeah. it just moved very carefully into our culture. Uh, I, I do want to introduce my to my audience once again, Jim Garak who is a board member of LEAP and a former prosecutor. Jim, thank you so very much for joining us again. Jim, are you there? There's something going on. That's a 240 area code, and that doesn't sound right. Well uh-huh. But one of the things that we need to go back and and look at is the idea of that this these policies also taught us in our own community to be afraid of each other i mean um people were going into their houses especially in small communities across the country uh uh and in urban neighborhoods uh if i mean and and so black boys got demonized
2: yeah
3: and when they were demonized successfully then they came to respond to that and that's why we have this huge collective sense of um of invisible children in in our community but what what i want to do right now is to let people know our lines are open at 347-838-9852 and play this clip from this documentary, which is a true story about a young black boy in uh, California who decides that his only option in of survival and how he gets involved... Because of these laws And the cocaine trade You're listening to Our Common Ground And we'll talk more with Neil Franklin of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition He is the executive director Right after this
9: In six months time I controlled three crack houses So I started generating $1,000 every two days And that's after six months of dealing It was like going from a hot dog stand To open up a restaurant I mean, everything was just smooth sailing. I got to get it while I can, because I mean, there ain't no guarantee it's going to be there tomorrow. You know, it's no guarantee that I'm going to wake up tomorrow, but I'm going to do all I can, you know what I'm saying, survive. In the very beginning, there was really no violence, but about a year into it, you started hearing about the, the drive-by killings and the setups and the
4: robberies and the murders. Death in the Oakland streets, rival gangs involved in the drug trade, shooting it out, almost a weekly occurrence whole neighborhoods are killing grounds many of the victims and their killers are very young teenagers and younger now the schools not only have the traditional memorials to those who died in world wars but new makeshift memorials to those who died in street wars so much death in the open streets
9: am i gonna live till next week i run with a pack of wolves you know what i'm saying so to keep from getting ate up i got to be a wolf myself you know what i'm saying you know, because ain't nobody gonna take nothing from me, just like I told you. Motherfucker, when they try to take something from me, you better bring lunch because it's gonna be a long day. You know, motherfucker ain't going out like no little punk motherfucker because I'm not about that, you know what I'm saying? I don't start no shit, but at the same time, I won't work from it either, you know? This is the very spot where my partner Banana was killed, and the subsequent chain of events forced me to flee my East Oakland home and take refuge in Fresno, California. He was on the hundreds of MacArthur one night, late 84. Some vultures. Guys, that go around praying on drug dealers to rob them. Came up to my partner, Banana. stuck a gun to Banana's stomach. Banana was known to carry a lot of money even back then. So Banana told him, well, nigga, you got to shoot me because I ain't giving you shit. Banana died on the spot. We sent out people, you know, to find out who did it. The way we were, you know, we lived by the the streets certain guys took matters into their own hands. <laughs> On the course of their retaliation, two friends of the guy who actually killed Banana were murdered. I was told from reputable sources that they were looking for me, the friends of the vultures who were, who were slain. I took all the money I had, filled up a backpack, put two pistols in there, and left for the next year. At that point, I was in fear of my life. I was, you know, 18 years old, so kind of Graham busted friends of Probably about the 10th month I was a friend, I mean, the money was completely gone, $30,000 in cash. Doing nothing, buying clothes, going out eating, having sex with different girls, $30,000, I mean, it doesn't last forever. That's actually not a lot of money. Being I was broke, I didn't have no other way to get any money, so the only other choice I had is to go back to Brookville Village, go back to East Oakland. I just had to go back to doing what I knew how to do, which was selling crack. You know, I prayed God every night that uh I can survive for at least four more years in this game. I'd be like scared to go out of my motherfucking house, you know, because, man, these motherfuckers are ambitious, you know what I'm saying? But uh, either you roll up with them or you're going to get ran over. I was flat broke, you know, no money, no means to really get any money, well, you know, not as fast as I wanted. So I was pretty much desperate, you know. Whether, you know, I got to kill somebody or whether I got to rob a bank or whatever it's got to be, you know what I'm saying? Because man i would rather die than to be broke you know what i'm saying because money is power when i got back to brookfield village i hooked up with my old friends who over the course of that year i was gone they had become vultures the plan is to go out and kidnap a drug dealer uh, rob him we had one particular drug dealer in mind you know he was probably one of the biggest ones at the time in the city out of all the people we could have targeted we targeted him because he he was known to keep large amounts of money or carry large amounts of crack but he was also a pussy at the same time he was a fucking he was a pushover he didn't have a hard bone in his body. In the very beginning, nobody had bodyguards or enforcers. That came years later. We didn't leave until two o'clock in the morning, set up across the street from the apartment where the dealer was known to sell his drugs at. We knew he was there because he had a Cadillac at the time. It was parked in front of the apartment complex, waited in the car for about an hour or so. Me and my three partners were parked right here in our car, watching that door right there on that apartment building. We watched the dealer come out the apartment complex carrying a brown paper bag. By the time it took him to get in his car and close the door, we had already got out of our car. dashed across the street. I snatched open the car door, stuck the gun in his face and told him, motherfucker, this was a robbery. I ordered him to open the passenger side door up. My partner got in. I squeezed in beside the dealer on this side. And we drove off to Brookfield going that direction. I grabbed the bag. I to the bag and it was filled with crack cocaine. It was already processed, cooked and cut. By the time we pulled up at the house, it was three o'clock in the morning. About four or five drug addicts in there. So I ordered everybody to leave. We took the dealer inside of the house and took him in the bedroom and tied him up. We went through the drugs, divvied the drugs up. I figured, let's kill two birds with one stone. So I said, look, give us your phone number because we're going to ransom your ass off. So we called his partners. We told them we wanted $50,000 or we going to kill this nigga. So we carved out a meeting spot downtown Oakland. So once we got the money, a paper bag with $50,000 in it, we ended up taking a dealer to the Tenderloin district in San Francisco, releasing him unharmed. No repercussions. He was just happy we didn't kill him. I'm back in business in a big way opened up another crack house, did what I did best, sell crack. It's a whole new year, about to be a whole new world for me. I was in this room, this was my bedroom during that time. So I was laying in bed, just watching TV, flicking through the channel. A story came across the screen about a Colombian cocaine queen known as Griselda Blanco, who was arrested earlier that day in Irvine, California.
4: Police are saying she may be responsible for as many as 200 murders. That over a period of more than a decade of drug wars.
9: As I was watching the news stories, I was completely blown away. I had no idea a drug dealer can move those amounts of drugs, much less a woman. And the murders that they said the godmother committed, I mean, was just astounding.
2: A
1: Colombian drug baroness, widely considered to be the most bloodthirsty cocaine smuggler the business has ever known.
9: For a drug dealer to accumulate $1 billion in cash was so incredible to me. I could not believe it. She was a real life cocaine queen which at the time I didn't know they even existed so once I saw the news report I mean I was in awe of her criminal acrobatics and what she was able to do on on the streets of the United States of America I mean I basically idolized the lady I thought if I could ever meet this woman you know maybe some of what she had could rub off on me you know I'm doing fairly well in the drug game you know able to buy car, got twenty, thirty thousand dollars $40,000 that I could reach out and touch, you know, cash money. This shit like blowing me away, so much motherfucking money coming in. Then I think back to the motherfucking lean years, like when I was like maybe 12, and 13 years old, I was like, damn, what was all this money at you know? The money that I was making, that's probably the most that I could have made and the most that I would have made, I mean, you know, for probably years to come. The motherfucking in my clique, we call money go. That's what we call money, G-O, go. Because with money, you can do anything. But without money, you're stuck. You're on the stop line, you know what I'm saying? So when you got money, you're on the green line. So like I say, we call it go. There were a lot of droughts in the city of Oakland. So if I couldn't get it from one dealer, I would try to go and negotiate a deal with another dealer. There's only so much that you could purchase at that time because there was no large-scale dealers in Oakland. The city was basically wide open at that time. I was basically at the top of the food chain in Brookfield Village. When I first heard about Griselda Blanco, I mean, years later, I still had an indelible mark on my brain as far as, you know, how this lady was able to sell such vast amounts of cocaine. I mean, it was just, I was in awe of her, you know, even five, six years later. And I wrote the Godmother letter. Godmother, I think you're the greatest queen ever to sit on the throne. I've admired you from day one, from the first time I heard of you. There's many things I would like to talk to you about, girl. I appreciate you. You know what I'm saying? And I salute you, you know what I'm saying, for being a real woman. I idolize you, you know? I aspire to meet you one day. Charles always being smart, you know what I'm saying? Anybody that could sit down and see somebody that's on TV going to jail and decide to write, I wouldn't have thought of no shit like that. I would have been like, that bitch is watch. You feel me? It's over for that bitch. But he decided to write that bitch. Three days later, I received a phone call. I'm nervous, you know? I don't know how to address the lady. You know, I mean, this is the godmother cocaine. You know, I wait for this moment for six years. She said, hello, may I speak to Charles? I said, yeah, this is Charles on the phone. How are you? She said, how you doing, Charles? This is Griselda Blanco. What's with this sudden interest, Charles? I said, well, I just want to rub elbows with a legend. I didn't know how to address her, you know, because they all know Miss or whatever. She said, oh, and called me Godmother. The next day, she called me, and we spoke on the phone for an hour. And when I walked...
3: And, Neil, you see, Mm. one of the reasons that I wanted to play that from this documentary is because this is what Prohibition brought us.
6: Yeah, wow.
3: The kind of options that this young man saw for himself that could get fulfilled. And then he um, grows up, and I just, the the violence, the need for violence, the whole nine yards. And, and that, this was course, happening in our community.
6: And that's what's still happening in, in our community, but the, the difference is that when he got involved, there was legitimately probably more of an opportunity for him to um, make the money he made. Unfortunately, today, because of the vast unemployment, especially for our young people, and the lack of hope that they see in many of our communities for being able to financially support themselves or their families, they see, uh, they think they can go out here and get into this business and make a lot of money. But in reality of it, is that most by far make less when you when you look at the time they spend on the streets and and, and doing what they do when you add up those hours and divide you know, the, the money that they make, it's less than minimum wage. Uh huh. Um, but it makes them feel good about themselves in an environment where there's not a lot of uh self esteem per se um uh-huh, it gi- uh-huh. it gives them something to feel good about but unfortunately it's the wrong thing to feel good about
2: yeah um, yeah
6: you know it it gives them a sense of power it gives them a sense of respect that they they get from nowhere else um mm-hmm. And in, in some of the organizations that they're in, and some of the gangs that they're in, it gives them a sense of bonding and brotherhood, and you know, you got my back, I got your kind of back thing, like somewhat like a, what a family should be, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And you know, it's um, it provides a false sense of hope and security for these young people. Absolutely. Um, and that's it needs well. First, we need to to get rid of that false opportunity, opportunity, and then we need Mm -hmm. to give them some real hope Mm -hmm. and some real opportunities uh, Mm -hmm. that will take them beyond the age of 25.
3: Yeah, a question beyond all of this is how does a community compete by saying to young people, stay in school, um, get a trade, go to college, Mm-hmm. uh set up a life for you for yourself, become involved in the community. you can't compete with <laughs> with happen. with thirty and forty thousand dollars that they can right. make a week
6: right It's not gonna happen yeah, it's now, not going to happen
3: let me let me check this line here um two four oh you're on the air. is this Jim?
10: Hello? Oh, no, this, no, I'm Ronald. I'm just from Maryland. Oh, yeah, I Yeah, that's, that's a Maryland exchange. <laughs>
3: yeah.
10: <laughs> um, hi, okay. um, we'll Thank you for joining you. us. Oh, thanks. I just wanted to say, you know, it's really great to talk to people and actually see that there are still people out there who have a mind of their own and just don't say, oh, no, drugs are bad. They can't be legal. People should have no choice. Oh well,
6: Ron. Ron is your name, right? Yes. Well, I I thank you uh, for that comment, and and I thank you for calling in. And um, I think that more people are realizing that um, it's time to take a stand. You know, for things. I mean, just and I think Janice spoke earlier about um, Occupy uh, Boston. You know, but she spoke of an organ, a, a group of folks that are dealing with some of the more of the, some of the racial issues, but I think we're starting to see, and you sound like a pretty young person Iran, and I think that the young people are beginning to take a stand uh for things that they see that are wrong, and um things that they need uh, things that need changing things that are important where 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 um Others are not taking a position,
5: mm-hmm. and
6: and um, so maybe maybe the country and, and it's not just here in this country, but as we've seen, it's around the world. But maybe in this country, maybe things are changing. You know, I, I I definitely believe that we have momentum in in dealing with these drug policies and changing these drug policies. I do see that happening, and I believe the federal government also sees it that happening. That's why they're pushing back. In California and some of the other states um, But uh, Yeah I, So I appreciate that uh, that comment there Ron and, uh, appreciate
3: Ron when you say the... choice when When you say choice What do you mean How do you see these laws being reformed
10: I actually Now I'm not just saying this Because I'm a young person I've actually done extensive research on this topic It's one of my passions And I've actually written two papers on it and right now, I'm actually writing a commentary article for it on pro-legalization. Um, I personally think that, you know, all these drugs they need to be made legal, just like alcohol, just like tobacco. And I actually like to bring up one of these great points, uh, and it re- uses psychology. And actually, according to psychology, by using pro by prohibition crime is actually going to increase and usage of drugs will actually increase because, according to reverse psychology, when you make these sort of laws that say, oh, no, you can't do drugs, people are going to want to do them even more. They're going to want to get involved. And then once people start doing these, and since we have laws restricting them, gangs are going to be formed just like gangs were formed during the prohibition of the 1920s to 1930s to make alcohol and to just dist- to distribute it. Mhm. Mhm.
3: Yeah. Uh so you're you're talking about uh having state control over the distribution of drugs like marijuana and and cocaine What drugs are you talking about?
10: I'm speaking about all drugs, from cocaine to LSD to marijuana to um, heroin. I, I know it may seem extreme and radical, but, you know, when it comes to something like this, it needs to be extreme. I'm, I'm not saying states should be able to choose whether they are legal or not. I'm saying nationally, we need these drugs to be legal because once these drugs are made legal, the crime dro- the crime rate will drop significantly. In fact, the first year prohibition was lifted Crime had dropped the lowest it was in the in the last 30 years, and you know this is really funny. The only crime that was reduced during prohibition was public swearing, and that was only by fifteen fifty percent.
6: Wow, you have done your research. <laughs> oh yeah, Ron, and Ron, probably, Ron is right on. He's right on point with everything that he said, and uh, I appreciate you doing that research, Ron. It sounds like uh, uh, you are a leap. Student or member? At least you should be. Uh,
10: thanks.
3: <laughs> your your paper should be submitted to Leap for publication. <laughs> oh, In definitely. A, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Ron, let me ask you a question, and this is just out of pers- uh, out of curiosity. As the host of this show, how did you find us tonight? Having given your the the kind of research and your interest.
10: Oh well, actually, I've been use, I've been listening to blog talks since I'm going to say maybe for six months now, and mm-hmm. you know tonight I was after I was revising a paper. It wasn't on drugs. It was just another paper. I was just really bored, so I wanted to you know listen to a radio, and I was looking under. I believe I don't know if yours is under progressive politics or not, but I was just looking under politics, and I found yours, and it was online, and your topic up tonight was exact was right up my alley. So I just wanted. Wow. to... Listen in
3: well, that's 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 great, um, did you find it through a tag? Um, did
10: you do a no, search? actually I, no actually, I just clicked just on, on, on air. Air. yeah, and then well, I went under one of the politics one uh-huh, uh-huh,
3: wow, well, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and thank you for holding so that you could uh make your comments. And I hope that you will submit your paper to Leap, and they can put it in their newsletter and on their website. And you also can submit it to us, and we will put it on our website because we do have a Leap tab. Um, Neil Franklin and Leap have been friends of this show for a couple of years, for th- about three years.
2: Mm-hmm. So if
3: you do that, you can do it by sending it to OCG Info at ourcommonground.com and we'd be really honored to be able to to put your work on our website.
10: Thanks that'd be awesome. I I'm definitely going to consider that. Okay, yeah,
3: great. That's great. And thanks for 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 joining us. Do I need to put you on mute? Are you one of our mute listeners on a phone yeah. or something? Okay. Yeah. Thanks Ron for joining us. Neil see that's the kind of thing that we need people to be doing i I'm, I'm very impressed i i don't know if you know deborah peterson small do you know her
6: ah uh, that's that's one look i have i have two new uh heroes of in since the past two years and well actually three or one of course but uh who I've been, one is michelle and the other one is deborah uh these wow. these, these mm-hmm. two women uh and 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 Deborah I learn every time I have a conversation with Deborah you know I learn something new from her. She's uh-huh. is amazing.
3: Yes, yeah, she no? is. She really has done some fantastic work. Uh I listened to a conference and this week on our Truth Works network we're going to be running uh her presentation on the war on drugs uh on Monday night. Because she has done some fabulous work, especially about communities of color and and the drug war. Let me ask you, Neil, so that people are clear: when Leap advocates um, dismantling prohibition of drugs, what are you? What are your recommendations around control and the solutions of? Of um of balancing uh, people's ability to use drugs and the health and addiction issues,
6: okay, well, officially, leap takes no position on it, leap has no official position on that um mm-hmm. and and when you think about it when we. You know, after 13 years of the mayhem back in the 1920s when they ended alcohol prohibition, they had no plan. They had no grand plan or scheme of how they're going to go about re-legalizing alcohol. They just knew that they had to get out of the mess that they started. Um, So Leap has no official position. However, um, me, uh, beginning with marijuana, I think it's rather simple. Um, There's a... There's an effort in, and this is just an example, there's an effort in California right now uh, that they're trying to get on a ballot. It's it, it's called Regulate Marijuana Like Wine. makes a lot of sense to me. We already okay. have policies in place in the wine industry where you can make your own wine, you can grow your grapes, you can make your own wine, you just can't sell it, and if you want to buy it, you can buy it in a store or package it to a good store or whatever, uh, you you know, you got to be 21 years of age, you know, so you know what the standard policies are, and they may change from state to state. Mm-hmm. So there's a model already in place for marijuana. Let's move on to heroin. Um, my opinion is that, no, we're not, not to sell it in, in in stores next to the cigarettes and the wine. However, there are people who think that we should. Um for me, it's about uh, those who are addicted. Making sure that they have on-demand treatment available. Making sure that, and this is this is what I'm about to speak to here, is done in other countries. It's done in Switzerland. It's done in Vancouver, Canada, where they have heroin maintenance clinics, where someone who's addicted can go to a medically supervised facility. Um, if they can't. You know, and, and they pay minimum amounts of money for what they need. If they can't afford it, then they don't have to pay anything. But they get good quality heroin that's not cut with something that's worse than the drug itself. They know exactly how much they're administering. Uh, if they have to come back a second time or a third time during that date so that they don't get sick for missing a the dose, they do so. Now what happens is in addition to them getting their dose, They get counseling that they need, and they also get to speak with people and work with people about other issues that they may have, such as job training and placement for a non-sensitive type job, uh, housing issues, um, and other concerns, health issues, and psychological services. So the person's needs are being dealt with. They're no longer lying to their family members. They're no longer stealing from family. They're no longer robbing people, breaking in cars, breaking in homes, committing burglaries, and what have you. And in Switzerland, under this program, crime has gone down. Uh, for those intravenous drug users, uh, rates of uh, new cases for for AIDS and Hep C have gone down dramatically. And for instance, in Vancouver, they've had not one overdose death at this facility,
3: mm-hmm. not one.
6: So, but let me up.
3: ask you: so, are you suggesting are you suggesting that and And I know that this is not a leap position. this is right your insight as a former law enforcement officer, but are you suggesting that that these drugs ought to be uh
6: provided for free well absolutely for for those i okay. mean you, know, you have to, you have to be able to uh prove your medical issue of addiction just like if someone who's who's in, you know you're you're medically evaluated. And then it's determined mm-hmm. that yeah, this person is addicted to heroin. Okay, so let's. Here you are. Here's a spot for you. We have the the money mm-hmm. to do it. Okay. And so, but we get you off the street. We mm-hmm. get you out of the. Uh, yeah. And
3: under such a program, also people are able to become drug free because they have. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Some some they have assistance in coming off the physical. Mm Dependent of the drug
6: And you know an important piece That people don't realize Under such a program It allows them to uh, Engage In an effective relationship With people again You see Mm -hmm. because When you have someone who's addicted Out on the street Doing the things that they're doing They don't have healthy relationships With people But Mm -hmm. when their needs are tended to and they're no longer preying upon people in the many different ways that they do and and problematic, then then people will develop. They don't feel Mm -hmm. threatened in developing. And when you develop a relationship with someone, that's how they're able to beat their addiction. They have to Mm -hmm. be able to have healthy relationships with people in order to do that.
3: And you bring up a very, very important point. I think that one of the things that happens to people who end up in court as a result of their addiction because they're doing petty theft and and those kinds of crimes is that they don't have a support system that enters the court system with them. Right. Because families do tend to get fed up and tired to, you know, mothers. I mean, folks, we have to understand that one of the things that this, War on drugs um and the addiction and the out of control way in which all of this is happening is that we have mothers who put extra locks on their bedroom doors so that mm. they can from time to time allow the drug addicted or the the drug dealer child to be home safe right we have We have brothers and sisters who don't speak to each other because they're just fed up with the whole drug thing. Go sell your drugs. Don't come here anymore. And these people are entering both the mental health as well as the court system without any family support at all. That is a critical issue. When you you know all these people run around talking about the nation building, well, hell, the war on drugs fell on the nation building building, uh, and everyone everyone went home. <laughs> <laughs> it sure did. I mean, it, you know, and the thi- and 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 here's another symptom of these policies. People don't come out to church meetings. They don't come out to community meetings. They don't come out to school and neighborhood kinds of events at night because they have been, one, told that they have, uh, should be afraid, two, experienced that they should be afraid, right. and three, all the little thugs, slinging thugs that um don't have to go home and have no home to go to, are hanging on the corners and scaring everybody to stay in their houses.
2: Yeah. I mean,
3: if you want to complain about all the people that stand in front of the Walgreens or the 7-Eleven or the CVS begging, I mean, the war on drugs brought you black beggars.
2: mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure did.
3: Until that time... It was very unusual to walk in a black community and see a beggar. Our number is 347-838-9852. Neil Franklin, the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, is with us tonight. And, and Neil, I'm so glad to have you. The last time you were with us, you got shut out. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take your calls at 347-838-9852. You're listening to Our Common Ground.
0: The drug trafficking is a problem of supply and demand, and so all, everything that we do, all of our policies, all of our laws need to be evaluated or reevaluated in terms of their impact on the supply of drugs or the demand for drugs, and those policies that are not um, having a substantial impact on one or the other need to be discontinued. We can no longer afford to lock up a person or a, a nonviolent drug user uh, at, at a cost equivalent to uh, tuition at Harvard University. Yeah. Okay. You know what? We got to go. I'm sorry. our
3: common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves join us in this conversation I'll be listening for you Truthworks Network is proud to bring you Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends right here at TruthWorks Network. Wednesday nine PM. This is Janice Graham inviting you to join Elvin Dowling, Architects of Change and Friends. Each Wednesday, 9 PM at Truthworks Network. Change is a good thing. Doing it right is better. Join Elvin Dowling, a change and motivation coach, right here at TruthWorks Network. Architects of Change, with Elvin Dowling and friends. Wednesdays, TruthWorks Network, 9 p.m. Sometimes,
2: in the middle of the night...
3: And we don't want you to forget about the TruthWorks Network. It's Internet Radio ad Blog Talk Radio, and you will love the truth we give. Having a problem carrying that laptop, that iPad, all that stuff? We've got the answer at sisterbag.com. You know, carrying your stuff and more stuff is the problem. We've got the solution. It's Sister Bag.
0: Sister Bag.
3: Get one today. They're sturdy and large enough to contain books, your laptop, and everything else that you want to carry with you. There's a large inside pocket for a cell phone, wallet, or keys, whatever you carry. You can use these bags for school, for work, for dress. They will soon be your best friend. This bag comes in a variety of designs with wonderful, beautiful African fabric and the best of craftsmanship. And the bag is surely the bag to look for on your way out. Sistabags.blogspot.com Batira designs sister bags for men as well. So get your brother back. I'm Janice Graham, and I carry my sister bag.
9: We are the difference.
1: Many people here know that. America
7: is America today that many people can bear. Because of the civil rights movement. Not the Navy or the Marines or the Supreme Court. Huh? We didn't ask for an appeal. We took it.
1: I'm trying to make it real compared to what you to me
3: This is our common ground. Celebrating 20 years broadcasting both and last, I'm Janice Grant. We're so glad to have you with us tonight at our Common Ground with our guest, the author. And thank you so much for being with us here tonight talking about prohibition. It's time for a exit strategy on the war on drugs. And our brother, Neil Franklin from LEAP, is here. Jim, I don't know what happened. Him. Yeah, this man lays it out. I mean, he just lit it all up at our common ground two weeks ago. He just, I mean, we went out on a blast. So we'll have to give him a call. He he, he may be having um, some kind of uh, technical problem, because there have been some technical problems with Blog Talk Radio lately. Our number is 347-838-9852. And you, too, can have a discussion about this war on drugs, the pain and the price that we have played in the black community. Uh, Neil, I did want to ask you about the conference. LEAP is co-sponsoring an international um Drug policy reform conference. Tell us more
6: about that. Well, the the Drug Policy Alliance every two years they they're the main hosts for uh, their this this massive uh, drug policy conference. And um, so last one they had in in New Mexico uh, two years back, and this year it's going to be in L.A. and Everybody who is involved in drug policy reform work will be in L.A. at this conference. And, I mean, if if you are interested, like Ron, for instance, who was one of your earlier callers, if there's any way that he could make it to that conference, he would be absolutely thrilled. The many workshops, the many things that you can learn about policy uh, nationally, internationally, um and all the people who are involved every and all the different groups moms you know just like back in the 1920s when it was moms who played a significant role in in uh repealing the 18th amendment um we have a same likewise organizations today uh in drug policy work um so you know anyone who can attend this conference i mean it would be uh, well worth it for you, and you can find the link uh, right on our website uh, for the uh, DPA conference, which is uh, mm-hmm. leap.cc, L-E-A-P dot C-C. So um, we have, and of course, you know, we'll have, uh, and, and here's some of the things. I mean, in addition to drug policy, well, for instance, I'll be doing a workshop on uh protecting your rights as a citizen, you know, whether you're in a car driving or whether you're walking down the street or whether you're in your home, you know, and, and the police pay you a visit. You know, what are your rights? You know, mm-hmm. what do you, I mean, you obviously have a right not to be searched, but many people still give up that right, that Fourth Amendment right, and they allow the police to search them. Many people don't know that if they if they grant permission for the police to search them, that they can revoke that permission at any time so these are some of the things that you will learn you know at this conference in addition to um, drug policy and how you can be a part of one of the most uh, significant movements in our country today Um, so you know if if you definitely are considering involving yourself in uh, drug policy reform that's definitely the conference to be at no doubt Mm
3: -hmm. You know, um, Neil, I am celebrating my 20th anniversary this month in talk radio. Really? Well, happy yeah, anniversary. 20 years. Well, thank wow. you very much. 20 <laughs> years broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Uh, I have threatened to retire. I, I did retire for like around nine months at one time. But... I have been talking about uh the the savage way in which this war on drugs has moved through our community and I think back that I used to think that the war on drugs made no sense
2: mm-hmm.
3: and that if you only explained to people why it made no sense that they would stop supporting it but The more and more that I have talked with you and gotten to understand the work of LEAP and some other things, the more I came to learn about it, the more I realized that in its own twisted way, it actually is quite effective. Because if you believe, as I do, that the principal purpose of the drug war is not to get rid of drugs, not to reduce people's drug use, but actually to reduce people's ability to compete in society hmm. then it has actually been quite effective
6: <laughs> oh yeah i
3: mean you know it's, you it's you, you know purpose, one of
6: the it, its Go true ahead. purpose its true purpose the goals have been met and are still being met now the purpose that was communicated to us is a different story and obviously those goals have not been met because that wasn't the true purpose for it, in the first place. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that you know, you know, one of the things that we've done both in the United States and, and and in many other countries is criminalization has now become the way in which we push people out of the labor force. They're pushed out to the margins of the society, and when you think about the kinds of economic changes. That we're having in this country right now, and the fact that there quite frankly are not enough jobs, real jobs right. to provide for people in the population, then one way that you help reduce the level of competition that there is for the job is by criminalizing one segment of society, right keeping them behind bars Think because about in it. doing that you've accomplished <laughs> two goals one. You reduce their ability to compete in the regular labor sector, so you reduce that level of unemployment. But you also provide employment for the people whose jobs it is to mm. watch the folks that there you, you go. behind the bars, which you have pointed out.
6: And you can decide uh, and, where you want those jobs to go.
3: Yep. So we've created a whole industry around policing people and locking people up and watching them, uh, which has become a substitute for we, what used to be. Employment about making things. Mm -hmm. And when you look at this whole move of privatization of prisons, Mm. it is nothing but to support, to benefit from um, those, those things for which the war on drugs was designed let's go back to our phone 701 you're on the air I respect you thank you for your call 701 you're on the air 701 okay I'm going to put you back on mute Um, I think I think many times people are calling and listening on their phones because they're out and about 708, you're on the line with Neil Franklin at Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us. I respect you. 708.
7: Hello. Going what?
3: Hello. Thank you for joining us.
7: Uh, this is Jim Girak. How are you?
3: Jim, you're hey. late to the party. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs>
7: well, it's good to be with you.
3: we were going to send out the posse.
7: Well, here I am. And
3: more work to those police officers who who need more hours. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, I hope um, uh, we only have a short period of time. We've only got five minutes, and one of the things my audience really would like to hear from you is the whole notion of the prosecution side um, and why dissolving these these laws of prohibition is so important. How we get how how our children are getting in the
7: pipeline. Well, uh, what's happened because of this uh, war on drugs? We've turned our society into a bunch of informers, uh, where where people uh, end up uh, getting in trouble themselves. They get arrested for violating some some drug law. And and what we do is we tell them, now, if you want to get out of this trouble, we want you to inform on someone else, the kid you went to high school with, the kid you grew up down the street with, the guy who's your buddy, who may have given you the drugs or sold you the drugs or that you have information about, you know extricate yourself from your own trouble by putting your friend or relative in trouble. And and that's basically the opposite of the the golden rule where we used to teach kids, uh, well, uh, look out for the other guy. Uh, uh, put the other guy uh, uh, in the same shoes as you. And 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 today we teach them the reverse. And and so we've got basically uh, a, a rot uh, of the moral fabric of society because of this crazy war on drugs. That that instead of putting less drugs on the street, puts more drugs on the street because of the magic of prohibition. It takes uh, some substance that grows on a plant, and makes it the most valuable commodity on the on the earth. Uh, whether you're talking about uh, marijuana, heroin, um, uh, uh, or, or cocaine. So, so from a prosecutor's standpoint, uh, I I see that one of the the horribles that's uh, occurring is, is that we're changing um, uh, police work in, into turning uh, citizenry into informants. And, and it, it sometimes is necessary. I used to prosecute murder cases, and, and you'd have a couple of guys do a, a gas station robbery, and uh, they they kill the guy that they robbed so that the only people you've got left are, are the as, as witnesses are the offenders. So sometimes you've got to make a deal and give one guy armed robbery time in order to get the trigger man uh, to be put away for murder time. But what we've done is, is taken that extraordinary circumstance and, and a murder case and made it the ordinary routine run of the mill thing uh for something even as benign as marijuana.
3: Mhm. And 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 then on the other side, you've got law enforcement, you've got what I call real corrupt relationships between law enforcement and and the and offices of prosecution where there is the devil's deal going on. Um because law enforcement benefit by getting all this money because they do these, what do you call that deal that they have? They find the money and they can keep it for the programs in their
7: oh, they, in their they, for, they
3: forfeit forfeiture
7: yeah, forfeiture they, they, laws they, in, in any property uh, whether it's uh, real estate or automobiles or boats or planes, any property that's used uh, in furtherance of the commission of a drug crime. Uh, is a proper uh, uh, a proper basis to seize and confiscate, uh, whether it's money or, or, or this property. And then uh, often uh, it's split, half going to the federal government and half going to the local law enforcement agency or agencies that were involved uh, in the arrest. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a bounty system so that uh, police are rewarded uh, for going out and working drug crimes instead of violent crimes. Uh, rape murder robbery burglary home invasion uh and other things that that really should be receiving top priority but often are mm-hmm. not
3: well jim and neil i really think that uh you two should have a radio show <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because, you know, the thing is that it's information. It's a new way of people thinking about this. I think that we have been so angry at the young boys slinging um, marijuana and crack cocaine on the corner uh, of our in our neighborhoods and that we have gotten so into the system of demonizing them that we don't think of any of this in the in the on the larger uh, uh, landscape, and I really appra- applaud PBS uh, for pulling out the stops because I think that Leap and other organiza- advocacy organizations against prohibition really are going to benefit from that documentary because P- it really makes people think. About what this really is all about.
7: Well, I've kind of jumped in the middle here, but I—you're talking about the the prohibition show, right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Well, and a, we're
3: going to have to. We're going to have to. Jim, you're just going to have to come back. You owe me. See, Neil <laughs> owed me. You need to ask Neil what it means to owe me. <laughs> uh,
7: I'll, I'll explain that to you, Jim.
3: <laughs> well, yeah,
7: you have, you have an hour to go, do you not? I'll, I'll explain no, that to y'all. You here we're
3: on Eastern Time. Oh, you We're working on Central Time.
7: Oh my goodness! Here I thought I was early. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thank you both for being with us, and thank you for the wonderful work and leadership that you're bringing to the nation on on this issue. It is so much appreciated. And Neil, we'll just have to talk. Uh I know I have a I I know powerful people are ringing your your cell phone nowadays. <laughs> After I saw that walk going into the Capitol building I said, "Oh wow, that man's on a mission." <laughs>
7: well, Neil, thank you for carrying the load. <laughs> I apologize.
6: I <laughs> just
3: But we're coming back no, to we're you, good. Jim,
6: cause Jim. Yeah, cause you definitely need to to get Jim. I was telling uh just real quick, I was telling Janice about my two days with you, Jim. And mm-hmm. uh uh and, and and just uh how you I mean I just learned so much during those two days and just watching you in action. So yeah, she's gotta get you back on um for, for a good bit so people can indeed hear indeed
3: we will. And thank you both so much for, for for being with us. And we found uh a young scholar who is definitely uh uh one to be recruited by Leap. Jim Garak and Neil Franklin, thank you so much for once again being at our common ground and we're gonna have you back again and maybe we can do a special. And we can name, call all the legislators.
0: Yeah, That's
3: quite too. all right. Uh our we'll call all the legislators and say you need to listen to the show because we're gonna be talking about you. Thank you so much. Uh, for those of you who are our listeners, that was Jim Girac, uh, who joined us from Chicago, and Neil Franklin, who joins us from Maryland, uh, from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Um, next Friday, we are having a, an Our Common Ground special on voter suppression. It will be Friday night, 10 p.m., and I'll be listening for you. If you'd like more information, you can go to our site at www.ourcommonground-talk.ning.com for more information about the special on voter suppression. And next Saturday night, we'll be talking with the author who has written the book, and the book is, I guess you'll get it. The book is this, The Black Mega Church. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for your call, Ron, and I'll be listening for you. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.